This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading the 1928 short story The Fifth Dimension by Claire Winger Harris and The Molecule Trapper, a story by Florence Masson in 1934. I'll also be playing some avant garde classical music from 1934. Right now we are listening to the Allegro Moto of Roberto Jahard's music from the ballet Ariel, which was not actually performed during his lifetime. Uh, he adapted it to a concert suite, which is what we're listening to now, performed by the Symphony Orchestra of Barcelona. It's a surrealist ballet, loosely inspired by The Tempest and the conflicting characters Caliban and Ariel. The piece can be interpreted as about the tension between the two political camps leading up to the Spanish Civil War. For the stories today, we've got a special guest expert, uh, Skylar Casco, who will be on later. Uh, today's first author is Claire Winger Harris. Uh, she was the first woman to publish in science fiction magazines in 1927 and was the first American woman to publish science fiction under her own name. Because you don't want to forget Mary Shelley as the first science fiction writer and Gertrude Barrows Bennett, an American who published under the pseudonym Francis Stevens in 1917. Before publishing in Amazing, Harris had published in Weird Tales, which isn't considered science fiction, though I have read stories from the publication before on the radio. Her uh, first science fiction story was submitted to a contest run by Amazing Magazine and won third place. The editor said that the third place winner should prove to be a woman was one of the surprises of the contest, for as a rule, women do not make good science fiction writers because their education and general tendencies on scientific matters are usually limited. But the exception, as usual, proves the rule, and the exception in this case being extraordinarily impressive. So, kind of a backhanded compliment. But uh, she had a short career as an author, publishing from 1926 to 1930. According to two sources, she retired to raise her children, but her first story was published when her children were 8, 10, and 11, and she stopped four years later. So, I'm kind of confused about that. I don't know where their sources came from, but um, most of her stories were on the long side for this show, so I chose her shortest story, The Fifth Dimension, and paired it with a short story by a relatively unknown author, Florence Matheson. So, here's the rest of this song and our story.
Next, I will be reading The Fifth Dimension by Claire Winger Harris, which was first published in Amazing Stories, December of makes a premonition, it seems to be a proven fact that some people sometime have a feeling of dread of an event about to occur, which they themselves cannot explain. Very frequently also, it happens that one has the impression that sometime in the dim past there was a similar occurrence. It happens to many of us when we visit a strange place that we positively know we have never seen before, or have never been near. Yet we feel that we know it quite intimately, and there is something about it that makes it quite familiar to us. What brings all this about? What is the answer to those most puzzling phenomena? Our well-known author advances an ingenious theory on the subject in the present story. The Fifth Dimension by Claire Winger Harris Why, this has happened before, I cried as I poured my husband a third cup of coffee. John laid down the morning paper and shrieked with laughter. I say it has, and it's liable to happen again tomorrow morning. Did you ever know me to drink fewer than three cups of coffee at breakfast, Ellen? Oh, you don't know what I mean, I responded, a trifle irritably. I have reference to that feeling that we all have occasionally, that the identical set of circumstances that surround us have existed before in some remote eon of time. Fiddlesticks, ejaculated John as he set down his empty coffee cup and folded his napkin. I'm going to get my car started. And it takes so long, these cold mornings. In which unsympathetic mood he donned hat and overcoat and disappeared through the kitchen door. A second later, his head was thrust through the reopened door and a jovial smile spread over his features. Say, Ellen, it strikes me as I go out to get the old bus that this has happened before, he called back to me. Something else will strike you, I cried playfully, picking up an empty cup. He dodged in mock consternation. Then his face grew earnest. But seriously, my dear girl, he said, I hope you aren't getting to believe in all that rot about soul transmigration. Surely you don't think your personality has been previously decked in other corporal trappings, do you? 
No, I replied. I do not believe that. I have always been myself, and you will always be yourself, stubborn as ever. My explanation of the off-repeating phenomenon that my life has been lived before exactly as I live it now lies solely in the theory that time which is the fourth dimension, is, like space, curved and travels in great cycles. You cannot conceive of either the end of space or time. The law of the universe, as illustrated by the movements of the stars and planets and the endless motion of the molecules and atoms and the whirling of electrons, proves that the orbital motion is a cosmic law, and that all things return eventually to their starting point. And so, in the vast cycles of time and space, we repeat our existence upon this earth, and I claim that occasionally a fleeting memory of previous cycles thrusts itself into our consciousness. Too deep for me, said John with a shrug. I must get down to the office, and, by the way... An apple pie for dinner tonight would be greatly appreciated. I haven't had any for a long time. Do you like my apple pies, John? I asked, smiling. Do I? You're an expert at it, I suppose. He added as he all but disappeared through the crack of the door as it stood slightly ajar. The infinite number of times that you have baked apple pies in previous cycles of existence has made you adept in that line. The door was closed, and he was gone. Dear John, of course he understood the theory as well as I did, but he was forced out among associates in the business world, and it was essential that his mind be continually occupied with the practical affairs of life. Dreamers might be vouchsafed glimpses of the truth, but did such visions always prove beneficial? There was no doubt that John was a greater success in life than I, whether he grasped the significance of certain cosmic truths or not. After all, I mused, the difference between the great and the small, the infinite and the finite, right and wrong, good and evil, is sometimes one of degree and not of quality. The most difficult is simple if we follow the rules. The people who make a muddle of their lives have deliberately, though unknowingly, chosen the harder way. They are lawbreakers, not necessary in our legal sense, but they are transgressors of universal law. Had they simply worked in harmony with the law, success would have come easily. I've not always worked in harmony with the law. I thought, none of us have. Do I now, in this cycle of time, possess the ability to change errors performed in previous eons? Or am I a mere puppet destined to a certain definite course of action throughout eternity? Was Henley right or wrong when he wrote, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul? I believed in the cycle theory of time, and yet... In it, I saw no hope for changing the errors of the past. My theory was a death blow to progress and evolution. I had just slipped my last pie into the oven and glanced casually out of the kitchen window when I spied my neighbor, 
Mrs. Maxwell on her cinder path between her house and the garage. Suddenly I had the same sensation that I had experienced at breakfast. This has happened before. I know it. Then, like a flash, before a seeming darkness obliterated my fleeting memory came the warning to my consciousness that Mrs. Maxwell ought not to enter her garage. I took a step toward the door with the intention of calling to Mrs. Maxwell. There was plenty of time, the path was long, and she was not a third of the way to the garage. I watched her, my heart thumping wildly. She had stopped to pick up a scrap of paper. I took another step toward the door, then paused. Oh, what's the use, I argued. She'll think I was crazy to run out there and attempt to keep her from her errand to her garage. I wonder why I have had two sensations of this memory enigma today. Often they are weeks, even months apart. Resolutely, I turned and left the kitchen, intending to finish my remaining housework. I reached the first landing of the stairs when the sound of an explosion that rocked the house to its foundation caused me to start in wild-eyed terror. In a panic of fearful premonition, I rushed to the south window. The Maxwell garage was a mass of roaring flames. It is fate, fate, I groaned in my anguish. There's no hope. We mortals cannot escape. The cycles of time, like the wheels of the ancient juggernaut, ruthlessly grind us to our destruction. And there's no hope. It seemed that for months after Mrs. Maxwell's funeral, I could not rise above the sense of despondency. A hopelessness was ever-present in my consciousness, and nothing I did seemed worth the effort. Finally, realizing that my present mental state must not continue, I plunged into domestic and social duties with a vim that was most unusual for me. Not once during many months following the Maxwell tragedy had I experienced a single reoccurrence of my unaccountable memory flashes. Then one day, the sensation returned. John was ready to make a business trip to the south and had purchased his railroad ticket early in the afternoon. The train was scheduled to leave town at 8.15 p.m. The supper dishes had just been cleared away and John had hurried upstairs to pack his grip when the feeling that this had all happened before came upon me more realistically than I had ever experienced it. And this time it was accompanied by a premonition of the same nature as that which had warned me of Mrs. Maxwell's fatal trip to her garage. I lost no time in hurrying up to John's room, where I found him sorting over the things to take with him on his trip. John, don't go this evening, I said, trying to keep my voice steady. There's a morning train at 11.53. Can't you take that instead of going tonight? 
My husband carefully tucked his hair brush into his satchel and for a moment deemed me no reply. I'm afraid to have you go tonight, John, I continued. I've, I've had a, a sort of warning. You know what I mean. John closed and locked his grip. Are you afraid here alone? He asked after what seemed an interminable silence. No, it's not for myself that I fear danger, but for you. Won't you defer your trip? I persisted. Now see here, Ellen, John responded with a show of irritation. I've already bought my ticket and laid my plans for meeting Hopkins in Atlanta on Friday, and I can't and won't stop because of some fool notion of yours. I had supposed you had forgotten about this fourth dimension time business. He picked up his satchel. But whether you've forgotten it or not, the 815 sees me esconded on my way to Georgia. But John, dear, I cried in desperation. Remember the Maxwell affair? If I had only obeyed my impulse to rush out and warn poor Miss Maxwell, she would be living now. John paused and looked at me as if considering, but it was only for a second. Then he resumed his descent of the stairs. No, he said. I've got to be in Atlanta on Friday or stand a chance of losing one of the biggest orders we've had in months. Then it seemed as though something snapped in my brain and I heard my voice as though it were another's coming from a distance. The juggernaut, fate, grinds mortals beneath its wheels, and there's no hope. I soon became conscious of the fact that I was sobbing hysterically, and John was holding me in his arms. Ellen, Ellen, his dear voice was saying, I'm going to fool fate a trick and let Hopkins wait. I'll leave tomorrow at 11.53. Let's see what happens on the radio for the rest of the evening. I gazed up at him with incredulity. Oh, John, I cried ecstatically. Do you think we can prove that the cycles of time are not exonerable? We can at least give the theory a fair trial, he said, smiling. I poured John his third cup of coffee, but I did not feel that it had happened before. A mild thump on the front porch informed me that the morning paper had arrived. I brought it in and laid it in front of John. Then I fled to the kitchen where the odor of burning toast apprised me of the fact that I was much in need. Returning with the scraped toast, I seated myself opposite John for the purpose of resuming my breakfast. What news? I asked casually. For answer, John handed me the paper and pointed mutedly to an enormous headline. His face was ashen and his hand trembled. With a sinking sensation, I read the large letters. Head-on collision demolishes engines and cars and kills 70 persons. John, I gasped. Is it, was it 
the 815? His voice was husky with pent emotion. Ellen, it was the 815, and I've been on it in other cycles of time. I know it now. I grazed at him incredulously for a moment, and then, half in fun, half seriously, I said, John, you are now living on borrowed time. He smiled a little wanly. Not exactly that, dear, he said, but my mind has been doing some rapid thinking since I saw those headlines, and I believe I have a solution to your ever-puzzling problem of the fourth dimension, time. If you can prove my time cycles are not incompatible with progress, evolution, and growth, I cried eagerly, you will make me the happiest woman on earth. Wouldn't a new fur coat delight you more? He asked teasingly. Well, that would help some, I admitted. But tell me, what makes you believe that evolution and progress are fact, despite the eon-worn rut of the cycles of time? The fifth dimension, he replied in a quiet voice. The fifth dimension, I echoed, puzzled. Which is simply this, Ellen. There is a general progression of the universe over and above the cycles of time, which renders each cycle a little in advance of the previous one. We see and recognize this truth daily in the phenomena of humanity. Every baby born starts life a little in advance, materially and mentally, of its father. This process is very slow, and we call it evolution, but it is a perceptible progress nevertheless. It may be aptly likened to the whirls of a spring as compared to the mere flat coil of wire. The earth follows an orbit around the sun, and every year it is in the same relative position with regard to the sun as it was the previous year. It is completed one of its countless cycles but you know well as i do that the sun and the earth as well as the other planets are all farther along in space together there is a general progression of the 12 miles a second on some vaster orbit this general progression then is analogous to our possibility of change and growth the power to better our condition. In other words, it is a fifth dimension. The wheels of the juggernaut can be turned aside, I said reverently, and there's hope. That was The Fifth Dimension by Claire Winger Harris, which was first published in Amazing Stories, December of 1928. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. In the background, you've been hearing performances of Bella Bartok's String Quartet No. 5 by, in order, the Takas Quartet, the Metaphor Quartet, the Melus Quartet, and the Euclid Quartet. So that's what we're listening to now. 
Uh, today, I brought on Skylar Casco to talk about the science in our story, The Fifth Dimension by Claire Winger Harris. In the story, Ellen f- at first thinks that time is curved and travels in cycles so that everyone's experiences are repeated endlessly. So I'm going to bring Sky on and we'll see if that's possible. Well, I'll answer that question to the best of my ability in one second, but first I think I'll give some background. So, physical models of an oscillating universe go back all the way to the 1920s. They've been discussed philosophically for much longer, but that's when they started being discussed mathematically. In 1917, Einstein first applied his theory of general relativity to the universe as a whole, and the resulting equations predicted that the universe should contract. Einstein assumed that the universe should be static and added an extra parameter to his model called the cosmological constant. But in 1922, the Russian physicist and mathematician Alexander Friedman discovered that without adding an extra parameter, Einstein's equations could also describe an expanding universe, and he was the first to propose the notion of a cyclic universe in which a period of expansion, starting with the Big Bang, is followed by a period of contraction ending with a quote-unquote big crunch. If you throw a ball up in the air, eventually the gravitational attraction of the Earth will reverse its motion and bring it back down, unless you happen to throw it faster than 25,000 miles per hour, which is the Earth's escape velocity. Similarly, the universe should have an escape velocity, and if the universe's expansion speed is slower than that, then eventually the mutual gravitational attraction of all the matter in the universe will cause the expansion to stop, and the universe will contract. Friedman and many physicists after him considered the possibility that once the universe contracted all the way down to a small point, it may end up in a state similar to the one it started in, leading to another Big Bang. So these cycles could go on forever with endless phases of expansion followed by contraction. But that doesn't mean that time itself would repeat and that everything would be in the same cycle, right? Or everything would be the same in every cycle, right? Right. There definitely doesn't seem to be a reason to expect the universe should be anything like the one in a previous cycle. And when most physicists discuss the oscillating universe, they don't mean time repeats. Uh, They don't mean that time itself repeats. Maybe galaxies and stars would form again, but I'd expect the details of how they happen to form to be completely different, in which case there wouldn't be any humans in the next cycle. But the idea that time is actually periodic, although generally seen as absurd, has been considered by some physicists, and I can't find any clear reason why it should be impossible. In that case, the point in time when the universe stops contracting would actually be the same point in time as the Big Bang from the previous cycle, and everything really would repeat from there on. So, is Ellen's original idea possible? Given what was known when the story was written, I would say yes. But in 1998, only 20 years ago, physicists discovered that the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating, meaning that the expansion will never stop. So, the universe shouldn't ever be able to return to its initial state, which it would need to do to start a new cycle. This almost rules out the idea of cyclic time completely, but not quite. There are some counterintuitive hypotheses that still allow for an oscillating universe, such as Roger Penrose's conformal cyclic cosmology, 
in which once expansion has reached the point that no matter remains in the universe at all, this is somehow equivalent to a rescaled version of the Big Bang, but you'll have to research this yourselves if you want to learn more about that. Well, what about Ellen's husband, John's idea that there could be a second dimension of time that would allow the cycles to change? The short answer is the world would have to be extremely different if there were two time dimensions than the one that we see, so it shouldn't be possible. It's easy enough to write down a mathematical model with two time dimensions, but it leads to all kinds of weird phenomena that are impossible or unimaginable in our world, like a photon of light which is massless decaying into two massive particles, or two people who start out at the same place in time drifting apart in time without moving in space. In fact, it's unlikely that any life could form in a world with two time dimensions, as physicist Max Tegmark argues in his 1997 paper on the dimensionality of space-time. In the four-dimensional space-time we live in, it's possible to measure values of nearby fields and compute field values at some future point, and that just means it's possible to make predictions about the future based on some conditions in the present, with some amount of error that's not infinite. But in a universe with two time dimensions, characteristics of future points in space-time are not determined by initial conditions, so it should be impossible to make any predictions at all. Tegmark concludes that it's highly unlikely that information processing systems, such as computers and brains, could even exist. So I'm afraid that the wheels of Ellen's juggernaut are completely intractable. Well, thank you, Sky, for all of that uh, exciting information about the possibilities of this story. Um, I thought I would add a little bit of trivia about Claire Winger Harris. Uh, she wrote one of the first attempts to classify science fiction into 16 themes as a letter to the editor after another person said there were only five to six different types of science fiction stories. Um, so the themes she described were as follows. Interplanetary space travel, adventures on other worlds, adventures in other dimensions, adventures in the micro or macro cosmos, giant insects, gigantic man-eating plants, time travel, past or future, which I guess was kind of what this one was, uh, monstrous forms of unfamiliar life, the creation of super machines, the creation of synthetic life, mental telepathy and mental aberrations, invisibility, ray and vibration stories, unexplored portions of the globe, submarine, subterranean, etc., superintelligence, and natural cataclysms, extraterrestrial or confined to the Earth. So I'm not really sure what... Uh, ray and vibration stories are but I think that's probably the closest category that our next story would fall into so I'll leave you with a, the end of um, Bartok's uh, piece uh, by the Euclid Quartet and then we'll hear our story
Next, I will be reading The Molecule Trapper by Florence Matheson, which was first published in Amazing Stories, September of 1934. Bell laid the brick upon the low glass slab and his deft fingers attached an electrode to each end of it. Slipping an asbestos pad under it, he stepped back and threw a switch on a bakelit panel. A low humming sound came from what I judged to be an electric motor, and a yellow light from a lamp over the glass slab focused a ray over the brick. Even as I watched the strange proceedings, I sensed the incongruity of that object in the midst of the glistening array of apparatus. My eyes, growing used to the bright light, could notice nothing at first. Then I thought I observed a movement along one side of the brick. I drew my gaze there, and by comparing it with its background, assured myself that it had really moved. But as I looked, the same phenomena appeared on all sides of the brick, and I realized that the brick was shrinking. As I looked, utterly startled, the light grew brighter as the brick grew smaller, and the hum of the motor grew higher in pitch. The smaller it got, the faster it shrank, and the two electrodes moved towards each other more and more rapidly, the brick between them. When the object was the size of a domino, the light from above seemed to fairly radiate heat, and I became unconscious of everything but the splotch of light. Finally, the two electrodes were pressing together, and I knew that the brick was somewhere between them. Suddenly, the hum stopped, and the light flashed back to its normal yellow color. Bell muttered beneath his breath and threw a switch back into place. Pulling the electrodes out of the way, along with the asbestos pad, he examined the surface of the slab with a reading glass. No, I can't see it this time, he said. The last time, I could see the hole. See what? Just the place where it sank through the glass. That little thing sank through the glass? Surely, you know, of course, that it it weighed the same when it was small as it did when it was large, and the slab couldn't support it. I didn't know, but I nodded my head. He went on. Are there any questions you would like to have answered? Only about seven dozen. First, what is the light for, and why won't an electric light of the usual type do? Well, the usual type would do if I wanted it to light my work. But that one focuses a ray of heat upon my subject, in this case, a brick. You realize, of course, that as the brick shrunk, the molecules composing it shrunk together. This produced cold of such bitterness that to guard against disastrous results, I maintained a constant temperature. One of my early experiments showed the principle. 
I placed a small crumb of bread upon the slab, affixed the electrodes, and increased the size. The crumb grew, and in a short time was the general shape and size of a sponge. There was simply no substance to it. It was honeycombed unbelievably. When it reached the appropriate size of my head, it burst into flame and was consumed immediately. It is interesting to realize that that large piece of substance contained exactly the same nourishment as the small crumb it came from. It would also weigh the same. In fact, if it had grown much larger, I believe it would have floated off from the slab into the air. You see, to accommodate that large bulk, the molecules composing it had to get farther apart, and this produced heat enough to burn it. Rather interesting, eh? I hastily agreed with him, but began to wonder just what practical use the machine had. When I spoke to him about it, a faraway look came into his eyes, and I realized I had touched his weak point, or more truly, his strong point. He said, Ever since I saw through the difficulties of construction, I have worked with one aim in view. I would like to enlarge a molecule to the size of an egg. This caught me unawares, so to speak, and he saw the look of incredulity in my face. Oh, I have one problem to contend with, he shrugged his shoulders. Aside from that, it would be easy. If I could but catch a molecule upon some object that I had control of, my problem would be solved. I would merely have to enlarge the object to its regular size, and the molecule would have to grow with it. But I have not yet created an object light enough, so that when I shrink it into a microscopic size, it would not go sinking through the base. But I will, sometime. And he did, too. A few weeks later, he called me into his laboratory and silently placed a metal ball the size of an orange in my hands. From his hilarious manner, I had assumed that he had solved his problem, but I was not prepared for the metal soap bubble that I received. It lay in my hands with the weight of... Can I compare it with nothing? For nothing is... As light, I tossed it into the air and it floated gently down and lit softly on the floor. Bell took no notice of my questions, though I could see he was gratified at my reception of his creation. It is a nice solution to my problem, isn't it? he asked. Made of the lightest, toughest alloy I could find, filled with helium gas, and braced from the inside to give the most possible resistance to pressure. Try bending it. I cupped it in my hands and squeezed it with all the force I could command. It felt solid as a rock. Tanking it from my hands, he brought out a can and proceeded to give the brass-colored ball a thick coat of heavy glue. He spread the stuff all over it till... There was a full half inch of it on. Then he affixed to it the electrodes of his machine. Now you will see at least an attempt at a miracle, he said, and reached up 
for the switch. However, the heavy glue on his fingers caught a companion switch and carried it with the other. As a result, the over-heavy load on the wires blew out a fuse, and I saw my chances to witness the experiment fade and vanish. Bell was afraid some of his more delicate apparatus might have been injured and postponed the operation till later in the day. Seeing that I could be of no assistance, I left after agreeing to the hour of our next meeting. Before I left, however, the scientist warned me that whether or not I was there at the time, he would carry the experiments to completion or die trying. The rest of the day, I could know nothing but think of my friend's experiment. It seemed illogical enough, and yet the whole affair was illogical and true. It all seemed to depend upon whether and when the ball was enough reduced in size, a chance of colliding molecule would embed itself in the covering of glue and stay there as the ball regained its former size. The hour of my appointment drew near and finally arrived. I boarded a taxi cab and was soon on my way to the brick building to see a molecule caught. As luck would have it, a tire blew out when we were about halfway to our goal, and I sat and watched the hour of our meeting drift dangerously near. As I waited for the repair, I ran over in my mind the principles, facts of the operation. The cleverly contrived ball made of light with gas shrinking smaller and smaller until it passed out of vision. I jerked up in my seat in a horror. My watch said I had two minutes to save Belle's life. I grabbed a bill from my pocket, threw it at the driver, and sprinted up the street as fast as my legs would carry me. My destination was only a few blocks away, and I believe I made it in nothing flat. I reached the ivy-colored building, stepped into the lobby, and breathed easier. I had triumphed, I thought. But as I turned around, a terrific force caught me in the back and hurtled me to the floor as an ear-breaking noise reached me. I felt the building shake and sway, clung to the floor for one awful moment as I sensed my danger if the room should collapse and knew my friend was dead. When I escaped from the debris, I saw that the building was almost entirely wrecked. But as I found out later, Bell was the only fatality. The matter stayed on the front page for quite a time, but no one who was examined knew anything about it, and I preferred not to tell. And yet, the cause of the explosion was simple, and Bell would have perceived it if he had not thought so deeply of the matters causing it. But the truth was that his lightweight ball was a deadly bomb when used as he had used it. He had placed it upon a slab, attached the electrodes, turned on his power, and bent over the light. The ball was shrinking, and the light was growing brighter. Smaller it grew and smaller, reducing the inside volume, space that contained gas. Bell assured me that the ball could withstand an enormous amount of pressure, and this gave me reason for the tremendous strength of the explosion. 
Probably the ball had shrunk to the size of a pinhead, or even smaller before the gas had been compressed enough to burst loose with the fury it had. It must have looked innocent in that light. A tiny bead of metal too small to pick up with the fingers, but it was strong enough to blow apart the building when it reached a certain limit of compression. I remembered his last words to me. I'll get that molecule or die trying. He did not get his molecule, perhaps, but he got his alternative, received the sad alternative, his sudden death. That was The Molecule Trapper by Florence Matheson which was first published in Amazing Stories, September of 1934. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. In the background of our story, you heard Carl Amadeus Hartmann's Misere, performed by the Southwest German Radio Symphony Orchestra. The piece was written in protest of the first concentration camp, which opened in a neighboring village in 1933. This was a turning point in his music, and while he continued to compose in protest, he did not allow his compositions to be performed in the Third Reich's territory in the 1930s and 40s. And now, in the background, we are listening to Charles Ives' The Unanswered Question, which I believe was originally composed in 1906, but wasn't performed until 1934. Uh, this performance is by the Cincinnati Philharmonic Orchestra. The author of the story we just heard we know nothing about, not even their gender, but it is frequently attributed to Florence Matheson. In the table of contents, it's listed by Donald Matheson, and on the title page of the story, it's written by Florence Matheson. So, neither Florence Matheson nor Donald Matheson published another science fiction story, so it's hard to determine who the author was. In Science Fiction Digest, April 1933, in a list of stories acceptable by Amazing Stories, the author is cited as D. Matheson, so I might have just read a short story by a man. Sorry, guys. Uh, three other authors during 1926 to 1949 time period were potentially men writing under female pen names. Don Wilcox is a prolific writer. Uh, he wrote one story under the pseudonym Cleo Eldon. The editor, Robert A.W. Laudas, wrote under many pseudonyms, including publishing two stories under Carol Gray. And lastly, a story was published under the name Mary McGregor, who was the wife of Malcolm Jameson, 
In Partners in Wonder, Eric Leif Davidson suggested that Malcolm Jameson publish the story under her name. But the internet science fiction base notes that her husband's name is used on some of the covers of publications of her work. So, overall, it seemed that um, male authors during this time period preferred to write under male names. And it sounded like earlier from the quote about Harris writing that women in the late 20s and early 30s were less acceptable as science fiction writers. Anyway, the inclusion of Florence Matheson's story in the category written by female is questionable, but I was looking for authors who wrote in the 2030, 20s and 30s, but the primary sources are hard to find, and the stories were frequently too long. And I've already done one episode about L. Taylor Hansen and plan to do a future one on Leslie Stone. But today, again, as mentioned before, I have uh, Skylar Casco to talk to us about the science of the stories. So, in Matheson's story, what process is being used to shrink and, un- and enlarge objects? And would something like that be possible? Actually, the description of what's happening to the object seems to me to be contradictory. For instance, when Bell describes the expansion of the breadcrumb, he says that the molecules got farther apart. And that should mean, I would think, that the molecules are remaining the same size. However, the rest of the story deals with expanding the size of a molecule itself. And if the expansion of the breadcrumb were were caused by its molecules expanding, I don't see why they would get farther apart. But, in any case, it would definitely not be possible to shrink or enlarge a molecule itself. You may have heard that atoms are mostly made of empty space. And this is essentially true. Atoms have a very small, dense nucleus surrounded by a cloud of electrons that are relatively far away compared to the size of the nucleus. So, it's natural to imagine we could get rid of that empty space and make them smaller, or expand it and make them bigger. But that's not really the case. The size of atoms is a fundamental property of quantum mechanics that depends only on a few fundamental constants of nature, such as the mass and charge of the electron, and the energy levels of the atom, which are quantized, meaning that they're constrained by quantum mechanics to take on values that are multiples of another fundamental constant. Without changing these fundamental constants, which it's impossible to do, there's no way to change the size of the electron orbits. So, it's impossible to change the size of atoms, or therefore, molecules. So, that's great. Apparently, this guy's um, shrink-slash-expansion ray isn't viable, but... If we could do that, would the ball really explode when it was shrunk? I think so. I don't see anything wrong with the narrator's conclusion, which turned out to be correct in the story. To think about the properties of gases, in the simplest cases, physicists use the ideal gas law, which says that the pressure of a gas times the volume in which it's contained is proportional to the number of molecules in the gas times its temperature. The number of molecules in this gas isn't changing, 
And the temperature just depends on the kinetic energy of the molecules, which is a function of their mass and velocity. And we're told that the mass isn't changed by this process. So the right side of that equation, temperature times number should be constant. And that means that the product of pressure and velocity has to be constant. So uh, pressure and volume has to be constant. So if the volume is decreasing, the pressure has to increase. And that's exactly what happened, which caused the ball to explode. And with that, I want to thank you a lot for having me on this week. Well, thanks, Guy, for coming on. Uh, that about wraps it up for the hour. I want to thank you all for listening. And stick around for our next show, Music to Play in the Dark with the Crypt Keeper. In the background, I've been playing Henry Cowell's Quartet Number no. 3, Mosaic. And right now is the Bow Art String Quartet. And we'll also be hearing um, other portions of it performed by the Colorado String Quartet. The piece is scored as a collection of five movements with no preordained sequence. It's an example of aleatoric music or chance music where there's a certain amount of randomness in each performance. The term aleatoric was first used to describe Western music in the 50s, though the Germans have had a term for it called uh, for dice music, which is the first example which the first example of it is as early as 1757. So people have been using dice or randomness uh, to compose music for a long time. Uh, Cowell also uses specially devised notations to introduce variability into the performance of a work, sometimes instructing the performers to improvise a short passage. And this was pretty new, um, in 1934, uh, during this period of time, it was pretty greatly inspired by uh, jazz and what jazz music was doing, but bringing it into the more classical realm. So anyway, thanks for listening, and stick around for our next show, Music to Play in the Dark with the Crypt Keeper. I'll play one more section of Henry Cowell's Quartet Number no. 3. And then we'll switch over. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.